Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Made for More podcast. It's Ali Nitschke here, your host for today. And I'm actually pretty excited about today's episode. We're talking about something that I haven't had on the podcast before and also something that I get asked about quite a bit and I think is becoming more and more prolific in terms of leadership capability. And uh, I have a guest, an absolute expert in this space. It's Selena Fisk. Selena is a data storyteller who is passionate about helping others sort through the numbers to tell the real stories and lead positive change. Data is an increasing presence in our work and home life, yet Selena recognises that this doesn't always come naturally. So she seeks to build skills in others and make the use of data less daunting. Selena has mentored hundreds of executive leaders, middle managers and employees in data storytelling with the goal of benefiting the organisation and communities in which they work. Selena's book, I'm Not a Numbers Person, How to Make Good Decisions in a Data-Rich World, was published in April this year by Major Street Publishing. I love chatting with Selena because I think that uh, data data decision-making or data uh, capacity, capability is becoming a skill that more and more leaders need. We collect a lot of data, but very rarely do we know what to do with it and how to use it, yet that's really how we need to be uh, making informed decisions. So tune in to today's episode with Selena. It's wonderful. She's, of course, an expert and goes through some tips for how leaders can up the ante when it comes to data st- storytelling and uh, data, data-driven data or data-informed, I should say, data-informed decision-making. Of course, if you have been listening to the episode and you love it, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's so wonderful to be able to share these episodes far and wide uh, across across the globe. So hello to our international friends. Let's dive into today's episode. Welcome to the Made For More podcast. I'll be sharing my experiences along with some actionable advice to take your leadership to the next level. Introducing your host, it's me, Ali Nitschke. I'm a leadership and courageous conversations expert, a Nutella lover, a mother of four young boys, a wife and a dance floor junkie. I'm here to give you the motivation you need to level up, lead yourself, lead your team and your business. Let's go. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Made for More podcast. Today I am joined by an absolute numbers expert, Selena Fisk. Hello and welcome to the show. Hey Ali, thanks so much for having me. It is absolutely my pleasure. So we were just talking before I hit record, but I would love for you to share with our listeners and the the audience of where did you come from and where are you going? Yeah, so it's interesting. I am a data storyteller um, and for the last two and a half years, I've done this full time and I work with organizations to help people, I guess, make sense of the numbers that they've got and work out kind of what they care about and what they want their employees to care about and how they want them to use numbers in their role. Um, Prior to that, I was actually a secondary school maths and phys ed teacher for 16 years. So I come out of a teaching background, I guess. Um, And it was funny, I was talking to somebody recently and they said to me, 
that they feel it's quite obvious in my book that I used to be a teacher because I've got like summary pages and notes bits at the end of each chapter. And they said, oh, that's that's very teacherish of you, which I hadn't really thought about. Um, but now I kind of get to do this work full time, uh, which I absolutely love. Uh, now that borders are open again, being able to travel um, and just learn from different organizations and see what people are doing is just um, the, the absolute highlight of what I do. I, I just really love it. And I guess, where am I going? Um, I, you know, the goal for me is to make people feel a little bit more comfortable when they work with numbers. Like we don't need to all be experts in this space, but we do need to at least have the confidence to be able to ask for the things that we need, ask some good questions about the data and to be able to engage in a conversation rather than just being quite fearful or reluctant um, to be a part of that conversation because we certainly all need to know numbers or our numbers in our organisations and even in our home life as well. Um, so if I can get people a little bit more comfortable, then, you know, I feel like I've, I've done what I've set out to do. I love this and I love the topic that we're going to be talking about today because I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. There's sort of two camps, isn't there? There's the people that love the numbers and it's all about the numbers and they normally hide somewhere in the, the finance department or perhaps they're in our IT section or, you know, some kind of project area. And then there's the others that sort of have a head in the sand approach. And if I don't know that I don't know, then I won't need to know. And uh, particularly in this modern era of leadership and the way that we have access to so many rich data sources, to not know is really to set yourself up um, to make poor decisions or I guess perhaps miss opportunities where they lie as well. So let's jump into your book straight away actually because I think it's got the perfect title. So hit it. So it's called I'm Not a Numbers Person, um, yes. How to Make Good Decisions in a Data-Rich World. Love it. And I think, you know, I can certainly relate uh, to that. You know, I'm not really a numbers person. Please don't ask me. Don't tell me the tricky, tricky numbers or don't send me an Excel spreadsheet. And uh, I work with a lot of a lot of execs and certainly data, data-driven decision-making has mm -hmm. been very topical. So tell me a little bit around what types of things do you see uh, when it comes to data-driven data decision-making? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I actually, in my book and whenever I work with organisations, I make a pretty clear distinction actually between being data-informed versus data-driven. And I advocate for everybody to be informed by the numbers and not driven by them. Love and that. one of the examples I use in my book is Jeff Bezos, who talks about the, um, the development of the idea around Amazon Prime. And he said, actually, they did some market research and the data was actually indicating that they shouldn't have gone ahead with you know, that approach or tried Amazon Prime. And he said there was just a lot of other information and experience that he had that almost kind of dictated for him that he felt he should actually give Amazon Prime a bit of a go. And obviously we now know that it was successful. And so he actually did something that was against what the data was saying. But for me, that distinction between the two is when we're driven by data, um, we run the risk of forgetting about the humans involved. Um, ultimately, all the data that we use and collect is generated by humans. Um, it should be humans that are doing the analysis and, and looking into the insights. I mean, obviously, with the help of technology, but ultimately, all of that work has actually got to benefit humans at the other end of it as well. So when we're driven by data, the humans are not involved in those different stages. Um, we're very much focused on targets, finish lines, um, you know, end of quarter or end of financial year goals. And it's almost like at the expense of the people um, that are a part of the, the mm. conversation. So for me, when we're informed by the data, we use the, 
you know, the quantitative and the qualitative information we've got. We, we harness all of that and we're really good at looking at insights and thinking about the storytelling. But when we're thinking about actions and next steps, we're taking into consideration everything we know about the context of the business, the, um, you know, maybe the like socio-political kind of context that's impacting that work, the economy at the time, you know, in real estate, it's looking at seasons because their work is so yeah. seasonal and can be impacted by seasons. And so we're taking into consideration all of those other things as well as the numbers. And look, some people would probably argue that a lot of that data or a lot of that information is actually data in the form of qualitative information, which is probably true too, um, yep. but it's understanding that the numbers are not the be all and end all. Like at the end of the day, the numbers don't tell us what we need to do. Yeah, I love that. So do you find, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you were a, um, a high school teacher to start mm. with. Who do you think is easier to wrap their heads around numbers? Is it kids or is it adults now, now that you've Ooh, got both? That's a very good question. I'm actually going to say kids I because so I think um, even with 15-year-olds, like I and I taught high school and I had this one-year 10 class that I absolutely loved teaching and I think about them. And many of them came into my classroom really disliking maths or, or thinking that, you know, they haven't had much success in it in the past and so therefore they won't succeed in the future. And in some ways, honestly, <laughs> convincing teenagers that they can actually get better at maths um, is in some ways a lot easier um, yeah. and part of that I think was around the fact that I could recognize the progress that they were making so in that role I was able to go see you two weeks ago you couldn't do this and now you can or yeah. that was a really good question and you wouldn't have been able to ask that a month ago yeah. whereas often in organizations because the data conversations are so siloed and yes. spaced that you can't actually see that growth in people. It's not as easy to see. Um, mm. And it's not until maybe you get 12 months down the track where you ask them to reflect on where they were a year ago that people go, oh, okay, yeah, maybe I am a bit more confident. So it's not as, yeah, it's probably not as straightforward as being in a classroom with with teenagers four times with a, a lesson. Week. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. absolutely. And something that I hear quite often is, you know, I work in the leadership space a lot and obviously people get promoted into that role, but very rarely is there sort of the training or the education and capability building to back that up, particularly in those early days. Yeah. For those leaders, uh, you know, whether they're people leaders or project leaders that are looking to improve their data literacy, their data capability, what's, what's sort of the first step? Is it around going and learning more about that? Is it sitting with a CFO and understanding budgets for example or is it more of an immersive process what have you found so far yeah so for me there's kind of three big components of the effective use of data in organizations and the first one is data literacy so for me data literacy is understanding what the different numbers actually mean so um, depending on the role that you do, the organization that you're in, you will have different metrics uh, that will also be influenced by the technology that you use and the way that it kind of collects and stores that information. For every single metric, there's a literacy around that number that we need to understand. Um, and Charles Seif wrote a book called Proof Initiative Being Fooled by the Numbers. And he said, um, nobody actually cares about the number five. It's not until you put a context around it that it means something to people so if I you know if I own five dogs or I ate five tacos or I won five million dollars like they all mean completely different things um, and so for every data set that you've got there's a different context that sits around it that um, determines whether or not the value is high 
you know, average, low, and we need to be able to understand that. So even before we start to think about how we would work with them, we've got to build that data literacy. Um, the second part for me is around visualizations, which is being able to use the technology. And then the third one is around storytelling. So looking at the insights and then thinking about actions. But first and foremost, you've just got to understand the numbers that you've actually got access to. Um, and that could really, you know, even begin with you writing a list of all the different metrics that appear in your role. Um, and then starting to think about, well, of that list, what do I care the most about? What are the things that I would prioritize to say even like a top 10? And then are you confident in your data literacy around those 10 um, metrics? And if not, go and learn um, because you can't be expected to use it effectively if you don't actually understand the number in the first place. Yeah, I love that. And I think um, I mentioned to you before I hit record, I used to work at the Bureau of Stats. So of course, you know, data, <laughs> data literacy was a huge thing, actually understanding what the data was saying. Mm. Um, but of course, being the Bureau of Stats, it's apolitical. So storytelling wasn't a huge piece of it because it was meant to present present information rather yes. than use it as part of an engagement tool or a decision-making tool at the level that we were um, outputting it. So tell me, like we hear about storytelling being such an, a key part of leadership these days, you know, storytelling around relatability and vulnerability and engagement, et cetera, et cetera. How does that differ or does it differ when we're talking about storytelling from a data perspective? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, there are certainly elements where there's an overlap. Um, Brent Dykes has done a lot of work in data storytelling and he wrote a book called Effective Data Storytelling and he talks about there being three key components, um, the story itself, the data and um, the visual. So yeah. he kind of conceptualizes storytelling a little bit differently to me, um, but we both agree that there has to be an element of um, that human storytelling where there, you know, is a an aha moment that actually converts the audience's perception or changes kind of their way of thinking. Because if we don't do that when we're telling data stories, then we run the risk of just, oh, yeah, that's interesting, sitting in a meeting being presented with different numbers and stats and just going, oh, yeah, okay, good to know. And then we walk away and we don't ever engage with it again. So in some ways, like he talks about it needing to be a climax, um, you know, like, um in a traditional kind of storytelling sense, I don't necessarily think that it has to follow that, but we do need to be able to be persuasive, engaging in the way that we talk with others and engage in conversations about this. We need to really be able to motivate them uh, to act and to do something with the information that they've got. Yeah. And so as leaders for us, that's about, and in some ways it is a lot like telling a story. We work out what are the most important bits? What are the juicy yeah. bits that we need to share and want to share um, that are hopefully going to lead to people taking action down the track? So, yeah, certainly a bit of overlap, um, but not exactly the same because we also want to use visuals. Um, that's another key part because, you know, I can... I can tell you something, but if I show you an image of it as well, you're far more likely to understand the impact um, or the severity of the situation if you can see a graph that's been well-constructed for the audience as well as hear the narrative um, yeah. from me. So, Yeah, absolutely. And I think particularly when we're getting into sort of like big numbers compar comparatively, having a visual uh, really drives the point home depending on which way you're wanting to go so mm. if you've got someone that's you know just beginning this journey they've recognized that they need to get better at data storytelling they've recognized that perhaps their data literacy is um 
has opportunity for yeah. improvement. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you think they should start doing? You know, getting around storytellers, starting to tell a story, recognizing, uh, you know, some of the outliers that potentially could be interesting. Yeah. So for me, it's the data storytelling piece is kind of twofold. So the first one is around identifying the insights. So we can't tell data stories and we can't engage an audience like that if we don't actually know what the insights are to begin with. Yeah. So that's um that's a pretty hard skill to establish or to identify. Um, yeah. I've got a bit of a list of questions that might kind of help that process in my book as um to look for insights. And as you said, it might be things like what's happening with your outliers. You know, where's your median? Does it change over time? Like loads of kind of questions like that. Because what we need to do is be able to identify insights, pull those out, and again, prioritise them. Like what's the most important and urgent really for me? And then once I've got those, think about, well, how do I have a conversation with my team? about yeah. this yeah and to be honest there's a lot of people who are who were deeply uncomfortable getting to that point where they're talking to others about it because they're you know as you mentioned before this is not a skill that we've all got uh, most of us graduated from uni without any data analytics components of our course you know unless you're working yeah. in the finance field um you probably didn't get much of this other than say a basic accounting subject So we really are trying to upskill people um, across the board, leaders and employees. So being able to have a conversation and immerse yourself in conversations, you know, we learn a lot by listening to others and seeing the way other people approach it. Mm -hmm. So even, you know, reflecting back on when, when would you have, when, who's somebody you have seen present what you would classify as a really good data story. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. And if they're good, what made their delivery of that effective for you and motivated you to think about action or brought you on board and, and you know, you kind of jumped on the, on the change kind of agenda with them? What was it about that and how can you possibly start to replicate that in your, um, in your own practice in the way that you do it? But I think the more we, while I know I see people all the time get better at this, the more we're in it, the more we listen, the more we observe, the more we try different questions out, um, we can certainly get better at it. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think that's one of those things is that you're never gonna you're never gonna get good unless you start yeah. start somewhere. So yeah. when we think about, you know, even 10 years ago, data wasn't nearly as important. Well, I mean, it probably wasn't as important. We just didn't talk about it as much compared to now. Yeah. What do you think is gonna happen in the next 10 years where we've got, you know, access to more data than ever before? People are online, we can collect it, we've got big data happening. What do you think is, you know, the forecast of data in Australia? Yeah, I I think for starters, for a lot of organisations and for people, I think there's going to be a lot of overwhelm in the short, kind of in the medium term, because what I have certainly observed and, and the conversations that I have on a daily basis is that there are all these data sets almost that have been stacked on top of each other. Mm. Nobody's getting rid of any. There's just more and more data being added into our organisations and often leaders haven't had the opportunity to almost like zoom out and go, wait of all of these things that we could potentially access, what do we actually care about? So I think we need to kind of get over that overwhelm hurdle Mm. to begin with, where people are super clear about um, what we want, what we value and what we're going to use because we can't possibly use and action everything. Um, So that's kind of the first kind of short to medium term. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's certainly going to be a lot of growth in the space of predictive 
um, analytics and AI to to that extent, I guess to the extent of like being able to predict and anticipate um, what users might value, um, or, you know, what the market might need. But, you know, as we talked about earlier, you can't ever remove the human from this process yeah. and technology yeah. and that predictive analytics is awesome um, in terms of like, you know, if you've got, if you jump on Expedia and you book a, or, you know, Qantas in Australia, you book a flight, um, you know, it's recommending car deals for you. It's recommending good hotels. It's using the information of stuff that you've booked before to kind of anticipate what you might be interested in. That's all really good. Uh, but at the end of the day, humans need to be actually able to make those final decisions and think about how does it impact me and my team in my organisation um, because, yeah, it's never going to be perfect and we're never going to be able to replace that decision-making process with technology. Yeah. Do you think that that's perhaps a bit of the apprehension behind embracing technologies, people not wanting to be replaced by robots and be replaced by an algorithm or AI without understanding that there is two sides to that coin? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the there's the, we've got the most technology right now that we've ever had in our mm-hmm. lives um, or in history, and yet our unemployment rates are remarkably low. So, yeah, there's certainly, uh, for some people, it is that fear of will we become redundant? Um, yeah. Obviously, there are a whole lot of people working in data jobs now that we wouldn't have anticipated, say, two decades ago. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, there is that fear. And I think you can still... Um, I think people sometimes, for some people, they latch on to either the they love it or they hate it. Um, but actually, we can fiercely advocate against computers making all decisions for us, but still see the value in the information we've got and yeah. the, the ways that technology can actually make our decisions a little faster or kind of point our um, attention in a specific way. So, yeah, I think we can kind of hold both of those things at the same time and not want to be overrun by robots, but also <laughs> tap into the technology to make our lives easier whenever we the, can. The Will Smith movie always comes to mind when we talk about robots and AI. I'm not sure if you <laughs> saw it. I can't remember the name of it, but basically the, the robots go rogue and it's it's a big mess, of course. Yeah. It's, it's, an action, it's an action movie. Um, yeah, those so, sci-fi kind of things probably don't help. <laughs> I think that's people. it. I think that's it. But, you know, there's so many, I guess, great great pieces of information that you can use to enrich the story, enrich the engagement yeah. for teams, for organisations, for stakeholders. It's just a matter of mining mining that data and, and going, what is it that we actually, what's the story that we want to tell? Does yeah. the data back that up? What, you know, what is it that we need to, um, to share mm. with everyone? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I have loved this chat. So tell me a little bit around uh, when you were going through your I'm not a numbers person book, which I think is just such a perfect name for a data <laughs> a data storytelling book because people go, yeah. yes, that's me. <laughs> what were some of the interesting things that you came across? Um, so for starters, I actually named it that because that's what people say to me all the yeah. time. <laughs> They're like, Selena, I get it, but I'm not a numbers person. I was like, there's, there's got to be a book in that. Yeah. Um, some of the things I come across all the time, um, for me, I guess, one of them is around the different biases that we all bring to conversations about data. And, and that, I guess, is where I see organizations that do this really well and teams that engage with and use data really well um, are quite cognizant of the different biases that we come with. And one of the main ones that I talk about is confirmation bias. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was 
I was watching The Good Doctor last night and they were in, um, it's an old episode and they're in the pathology and the doctor came and dropped off the pathology tests and um, and the doctor started to say, oh, I think that this is going on. And the pathology um, specialist went, nope, stop. I don't want to know what you think. I want to have a look at it with fresh eyes and make some decisions myself before I'm persuaded or influenced by what you think. Yeah. And it's exactly the same with data. If we tell somebody that a certain thing is happening and we just present that information to them in quite a transactional manner, like it's a, I'm telling somebody else, they're most likely to, that's most likely to confirm, you know, it'll be confirmed by them because we're highlighting and promoting those bits that really kind of stand out to us. And it's almost yeah. confirmation bias from a second person. But the other thing, like if you're looking at a set of data or a group of data sets and you want or you believe that a certain thing is happening, you're more likely to latch onto and notice those things that actually confirm your understanding rather than actively seek out the things, I guess, that contradict that position. Um, And that's why I really like Adam Grant's work on Think Again. He says that we should think more like scientists, whereas where we've got a hypothesis and we're looking for data and evidence essentially um, to prove our hypothesis. But he said, scientists are also actively seeking other evidence so evidence that disproves their hypothesis and it's not until they've kind of considered both sides that they really um they they have a fair bit of conviction um in that hypothesis and what they were thinking was going on so yeah confirmation bias um is one of those things that really kind of stands out for me I guess that I work with and I see on a day-to-day basis yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. We definitely, you know, it's easy to be fed information um, as opposed to go and, you know, seek our own own opinions, yeah. particularly when, you know, time frames are tight. And if you're not a numbers person, how much easier is it just to go, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is great. Uh, so if you could go back in time mm-hmm. uh, to your early leadership days, what would be your top five tips then or something that you would like to share with leaders for right now? Yeah, so the first one is definitely around that being data-informed and not data-driven. And I think even as leaders, it's a really important distinction for us to make with our teams because when you have people in your team that um, are quite fearful of the numbers or are worried that there will be some kind of accountability attached to them um, when metrics are being used, I think being able to articulate that distinction is really valuable. Um, and I think it's far easier to motivate and get people on board when they can see that you want to be influenced and informed by the numbers and not driven um, by it. Yeah, I love that. The second one, I guess, for me is around how you engage others in the data storytelling. And I, and I, I guess the organisations I've worked with that I see being really successful in this space are the ones where the storytelling comes through meetings or through meetings. So it's not and I kind of mentioned this before, like it's not a one-way transaction of information where a leader just gives their team all of the information and says, this is now what we're doing as a result of this data. Um, It's actually where the team kind of comes together and goes, okay, well, these are the insights that I've found. And as a group, you prioritize them. And then, well, what do we do about that as a team? And that also helps eliminate or minimize the impact of some of the bias Because if we've all got these inherent unconscious biases, having more people around where they'll all view things in a slightly different way is actually really beneficial. So, um, yeah, successful organisations get people on board through that process of doing it in meetings. Yeah, and it almost normalises that conversation, doesn't it, as opposed to the black box that no one has any skills or capability in. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And it also reaffirms for them that this is about people. 
because they're a part of the decision-making process yeah, 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 and it yeah. reaffirms that we're informed by it, we're not driven by it. Um, so it's certainly a really good practice for teams to take on board. Um, my third one is around being really clear about what you value. So again, we've mentioned this um, already today. Of all of those different data sets, you know, what's actually your top 10? Mm -hmm. what, do you care, what do you actually care about? Why do you care about those things? Um, and almost giving yourself and allowing yourself permission to not ignore the other things, but really kind of zero in on those few things that you're saying are most important to you. Um, the knock-on effect of that is also with teams. So a lot of organisations that I work with um, are going through the process of writing a data plan because data plans narrow some of that focus down for employees. So rather than saying to an employee, um, I was talking to somebody recently and I was running the workshops for their teams and it was kind of like different workshops all day. And one of the um, employees at the end of one came to me and she just said, people keep telling me I need to use data to inform what I do. And I've actually got no idea what that means. Ah, and I, felt so, I felt for her. I felt so bad for her because she, she was actually trying really hard and she was like, I'm doing everything I should be. I look over all these reports. Um, I've, I, you know, I kind of understand what the metrics are saying. She said, but I don't actually know how that impacts me tomorrow or next week. Yeah. So as leaders, like how do we, if we think of ourselves as like a funnel, Yep. There's all this data up here. Yep. We want to make it really clear what our teams actually should be focused on and working on. Um, yeah. Because if we're not clear about that, how are our staff and our teams going to be clear yeah. um, about what's expected of them? Yep, 100%. Number four for me is around the idea of triangulation. So I, in the same way that, you know, we should never be driven by data, we should never be informed by only one set of information. Yeah. So when we triangulate data, we use three or more data sets to inform the decision-making. So we look for the trends across a few sets rather than just, you know, looking at um, one. And, you know, even in our personal lives, if we were talking about your financial position, we wouldn't just look at your transaction account and make yep. a decision about how you're going financially. You know, we'd look at, say, um, your personal loans, your credit cards, any savings. Like, so you'd look at an on-balance, you'd make an on-balance judgment across those different metrics, and it's exactly the same. Um, and again, even, in, if, even if you are going down the path of a data plan, even constructing your data plan in a way that does triangulate the information for staff, so it kind of reinforces, like, these are the bits of data you want them looking at, and you want them looking at them together, and then these are the things that you'd like them to be able to do with it um, yeah. at the other end. Love it. Hmm. Um, and number five is just around that bias piece that we've um, we've talked about. So being really super aware of our unconscious bias and just the way that our brain um, actively kind of works against us, even though we, um, <laughs> you know, we may be super aware of it and we may try really hard to minimise the bias. Um, it's very much about like what can we do to get other people on board, involved in the conversations? How can we seek out alternate information and evidence that might disprove a hypothesis? Um, but, yeah, being really cognizant of the fact that what we see is not the final answer um, or the right thing or the, the most important thing. Um, bringing other people on board is the best way to kind of get a lay of the land and understand what's going on. Different perspectives. I love that so yeah. much. So for number one, we've got data informed, uh, not data driven. Number two, there was engage others in the storytelling, you know, through meetings so that it's a, a collaborative approach. Uh, clear, be clear around what you value in terms of your metrics. What are the top 10? Uh, the triangulation. So using three or more data sets when you are looking uh, at 
data and analyzing it that way and being aware of unconscious bias because that can throw a bit of a spanner in the works. I think uh, there's going to be a lot of people that have realized that perhaps they need to up their uh, data storytelling. Uh, whereabouts can we find your new book? Yeah, so it's available on my website. So my website is um, selinafisk.com. So yeah, it's on there on the resources page. Brilliant. And I'll pop the links to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me today. Did you have any last thoughts, any takeaway words? No, I just love data. So, you know, <laughs> if you want to keep chatting, we can. But other than that, I'm all good. Amazing. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Ali. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed this episode on the Made For More podcast, please make sure you subscribe to receive future episodes. And of course, five-star reviews are always welcome on the Apple podcast. If you'd like a copy of the show notes or any of the links mentioned today, check out madeformore.com.au forward slash podcast. And of course, if we aren't connected already, you can find me in all the usual places. Ali Nitschke on LinkedIn, Ali.MadeForMore on Facebook and Instagram. I hope you have an awesome week and I'll catch you again soon. Bye-bye.